This is the Behind the Line podcast coming to you from the crazy, chaotic lines of the Pacific Northwest. And this is Pacific Northwest Headline News. Well, as local politicians try to claim that the Seattle and Washington areas are safe, Seattle had three separate shootings Friday evening alone, multiple shootings over the weekend. Two victims were injured in separate shooting incidents in Seattle on Friday night. Shots were also fired and damaged a garage door at a West Seattle fire station. Around 6 p.m. in the Greenwood neighborhood, police were called to investigate a shooting on the 100 block of Northwest 85th Street. According to the SPD, they found one person who had been shot multiple times, including in the face and in the leg. The victim, identified as a 50-year-old man, was taken to Harborview Medical Center and being treated in the ICU. According to SPD, witnesses told officers that a security guard attempted to stop a man who had thrown a rock at a nearby bank window. The witnesses reportedly told officers they saw the suspect pull out a gun and shoot the security guard four times at close range. Suspect has not been identified. Around 8.50 p.m., police were also called to investigate a shooting at Airport Way South and South Forest Street. They found a victim who had been shot multiple times. Suspect fled the area. According to SPD, the victim identified as a 46-year-old man was taken to Harborview and in serious condition. In the third incident, shots were fired and hitting and damaging a garage door at a West Seattle fire station on the 7700 block of 35th Avenue Southwest. No one was injured. Yeah, Seattle, super safe. No problems at all. Everything's under control here. There were also two men shot Saturday afternoon near the 6,000 block of 39th Avenue South. According to witnesses, the victims were in a small roadway between a school and a play field standing near their parked car when they were shot. The suspects reportedly fled the scene in a vehicle. Both men, a 24-year-old and 42-year-old, were transported to Harborview Medical Center. Harborview getting its uh, work done this weekend, huh? And these shootings were not limited to Seattle. uh, Sunday afternoon, two men were fatally shot in Tacoma as well. So, yep. You politicians just keep preaching about the safety of the Pacific Northwest. It's all lies. And to just add to the lack of public safety in the Seattle area, as if it could get any worse, right? This is uh, from the Jason Ranch Show at KTTH. A draft policy mandates Seattle police allow DUI suspects to flee even when they're in stolen cars. Yes, you heard that correct. And if a DUI suspect in a vehicle refuses to comply, officers must leave the scene. Some officers have already been told to follow this new guidance, according to multiple sources. Captain Kevin Grossman in the North Precinct outlined a draft policy dated September 29th obtained by the Jason Ranch Show on KTTH. It has caused great confusion and its effects are reverberating across the department. In an October 1st email, Grossman sent out the draft to his officers according to a source. It's unclear why the captain released the draft or why he wrote it in the first place. While the Seattle Police Department has not adopted this as official policy, one source explained officers were verbally instructed to follow it in at least one precinct, and it's spreading unabated. 
Some commanders told their officers to follow this as policy, according to two sources. The Seattle Police Officers Guild explained to the Jason Ranch show that at least one officer was even accused of violating the phantom policy to the Independent Oversight Agency, the Office of Police Accountability. The Officers Guild says the misconception about the policy has yet to be corrected by the department as of Friday, October 7th. The policy, as written, is sure to be controversial and comes as the SPD aims to mitigate the risks associated with vehicle pursuits. While state law prohibits pursuits, policy that the SPD adopted before its passage, DUI suspects are treated differently. According to the law, police may pursue suspects in vehicles if there is reasonable suspicion of DUI because of the threat they pose on the roads. No kidding. To prevent a pursuit in the first place, officers have used a pinning maneuver where a patrol vehicle inches toward the suspect's vehicle, making it difficult for them to drive away. Officers have had run-ins with addicts clearly high on fentanyl sitting in, ve- in running vehicles, sometimes with their foot on the brake. This poses an obvious public safety threat. The pinning strategy is not always successful. If the driver wakes up and drives off, it could damage patrol vehicles or officers, but at that point, will SPD, SPD officers pursue it? Not under the draft policy. Under the draft policy, officers are given three directives. When a driver is or appears to be passed out behind the wheel of a vehicle, whether stolen or not, they're told, treat the situation as a high-risk vehicle stop. Allow sufficient room, at least one car length, between the suspect's vehicle and patrol vehicle to permit a path of egress for the suspect vehicle and ensure there are sufficient officers on scene. If the driver flees, officers are instructed to allow it to leave, broadcast last direction of travel, and complete an incident report. Wow. In cases where the driver either doesn't respond because they're passed out or refusing to comply and the only crime at issue are DUI and or possession of stolen vehicle, the officer must attempt to hail the driver using voice or PA for a reasonable amount of time and then leave the scene and complete an incident report. When you sign up to be a police officer, you know what you're getting into. I was a cop for nine years. It is your job to put yourself into dangerous situations to protect the public. And somebody who's drunk behind the wheel or even in a stolen car is a danger to the public. And if these little babies can't do their jobs, then maybe they shouldn't be police. These people go on to kill somebody in a DUI accident or run over somebody. These cops, this dude, this worthless, pathetic guy that wrote this pathetic department policy should be held personally liable for that. He should be sued for that. He should lose his job for that. Anybody that goes along with this should lose their job for this. This is the most pathetic excuse for law enforcement I think I've ever seen. Oh, man, it's just, it's disgusting. The draft explains that the policy impetus is wanting all officers to be trained in vehicle-related force tactics. But officers say they've been effectively using pinning for years. Officers are upset with the draft policy, though some note that they've been handcuffed from doing their jobs so much already that this doesn't phase them the way it normally would. Many speaking with the Jason Ranch show on KTTH believe the policy results from Democrat police reform laws. Yep. They sure do. 
My personal opinion on the matter is that if the state doesn't want us to pursue people, then I am not going to risk civil or criminal liability pushing the boundaries of the law. That opinion is held by many when it comes to pursuits, traffic stops, and some Terry stops. An officer told the Jason Ranch show on KTTH speaking on the condition of anonymity. SPD is considering where they stand on the policy of pursuits in relationship to DUIs. It's unclear if they are considering the policy outlined by Captain Grossman. Captain, who should not be a cop, Grossman. Or if his draft is based on what the command staff at SPD is considering. Mayor Bruce Harrell's office and OPA ignored multiple requests for comment. Yep, these politicians answer to no one. They come up with these dumbass rules, like I ranted about this the other day. These politicians, they need to be held personally liable. I'm telling you, this stuff will stop when that happens, when they can be sued because people have been hurt, injured, or killed because of policies that they have implemented that they don't have a fucking clue about when it comes to street stuff. These people have sat in their little offices and behind desks for their whole life, have never had a real job, never worked on the streets, never dealt with crazy drunk or drug-addicted people, mentally unstable people. They have no idea what it's like. And they write these policies and tell people how to do their jobs that they have no idea not a fucking clue about how to do the job. Enough is enough. These people need to be held responsible for the stupid-ass decisions they make and these stupid-ass laws they come up with that are getting innocent people, tax-paying people, hurt and killed. Meanwhile, this is what Seattle's mayor is worried about. Not public safety, but uh, taxes, and the city not getting enough taxes. Tech companies are looking beyond Seattle for new office space, and the pandemic is enabling more employers to allow remote work. Both trends are concerning for government leaders in the Emerald City. Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell, speaking at the opening session of the GeekWire Summit on Thursday, said he was worried about the impact of people working at home on the city's retail businesses and potential loss of tax revenue. I'm trying to encourage employers to get folks back, develop the energy and synergy that we need, Harold said. But the fact of the matter is there will never be the good old days where everyone's downtown working. Harold's 2023-24 to budget proposal released last week said the tech sector continued to be a driving force behind the growth of the regional economy specifically citing the headquarters of Amazon and Microsoft in the region, as well as engineering offices for Apple, Google, and Facebook. However, the budget also acknowledged looming challenges to the city's continued expansion as a tech hub. Harold's budget notes that the work-from-home model appears to have permanently shifted employment patterns for at least some industries. Downtown Seattle's workforce is about 40% of its pre-pandemic levels, and a return to traditional five days in the office seems unlikely for many the budget acknowledged. A smaller commuting workforce will translate into less daytime demand for restaurants, retailers, and other downtown businesses, the budget document added. At the same time, fewer productive employees working in the city will also reduce or at least slow the growth of the taxable economic activity that supports revenue streams such as the business and occupation tax and the jumpstart payroll expense tax. The budget proposal also alludes to companies looking elsewhere for office space. 
Amazon is the biggest example of that trend after a series of high-profile political battles over the city's attempt to boost corporate taxes to fund human services. The Czech giant shifted its growth in the Seattle region to nearby Bellevue. At the same time, the company builds a second headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. Whether the city of Seattle remains the focus of technology sector's regional growth is a point of uncertainty. Looking forward, the proposal noted several of the region's larger employers are making capital investments in office facilities elsewhere in the region, and this could preview a shift in where growth will be focused in coming years. Longer term, real estate experts say there is also another risk, the possibility that landlords will appeal their tax assessments as their buildings see lower occupancies and therefore lower rental income, which could have an even more significant impact than a near-term hit to municipal from the BNO and payroll taxes. Errol said he's focused on improving safety across the city. The mayor is also trying, really, after the last article I just read, you're focused on safety across the city. What a joke, dude. The mayor is also trying to figure out how to incentivize people to come downtown in this new age of hybrid work. I cannot mandate people to come downtown unless there's something to drive them there, he said. Yeah, come on downtown, get beat to death in broad daylight by some crazy homeless guy that's high on fentanyl. You know, get shot out in front of McDonald's. You know, make your way around all the passed out, heroin addicted, druggies laying all over the sidewalk, the human poop everywhere, garbage everywhere. Come on down, have a nice lunch. Are you kidding me, guy? Not to mention, you shut all these businesses down for a year for the pandemic. And they made, uh, they found alternate means to continue to work. Means that are cheaper for them and mean more profits for them. Why would they come back? The city is a, it is a shithole in, in downtown. There's homeless people everywhere. And that seems to be the focus of city leadership is the homeless, and that's it. Just give them whatever they need, anything they want. Let them commit whatever crimes they want, and that's it. There's no concern for public safety. We've, we've covered those bases numerous times. You're continuing to have policies where cops are doing less and less to protect the public. You and your leadership have created this environment that people don't want to be in downtown anymore. And until you decide to start enforcing laws, good luck getting people to come back. All these taxes that you've implemented on businesses downtown, why would they stay? And so here's the problem with the left and all their renewable energy and all their environmental policies they can't even seem to agree with each other on getting stuff done klatskanai in oregon lofty plans for a potential renewable fuel facility at port westward may face delays after an oregon state department last month denied a key water quality permit Renewable Fuels is attempting to move ahead with its proposed $2 billion green fuels facility in and around Columbia County's Port Westward Industrial Park, which they claim will annually save 7 million metric tons of emission by converting vegetable oils and animal fat into clean diesel. 
Backed by local unions and economic development groups, the project has faced a lengthy process since Next first secured a 30-year lease with the Port of Columbia County in September 2019. Opponents to the project include environmental groups, even though this is a green deal, and farmers who are concerned about how the facility could affect the land around the port, awaiting decisions for multiple permits and legal appeals. The Houston headquartered company earlier this year secured approval for an essential air quality permit and possible land use changes. Still, Next is at least several months away from being able to break ground on the project after the Oregon Department of Environmental Equality last month denied Next's water quality permit, citing unanswered questions about the project. We are disappointed in Oregon DEQ's inability to process our Section 401 water certification within their statutory timeline of a year. But we will keep working with them as we refile and start the permitting clock once again. Next communication director, Michael Heinrichs, wrote in an email response to the Daily News, This is not at all a roadblock, but rather an unnecessary distraction to the permitting process. As we advance toward full project approval, our project timeline remains unchanged. These dumbass liberals can't even get on the same page with each other to get a green energy facility built. They expect all this crap to be online by 2035, and yet there'll be years of delays while they fight with each other about this permit and that permit and whatever land use, and nothing will ever get done with these people. None of this stuff will happen. None of it's going to work. What are we supposed to do? What are we going to use for fuel? Nothing. This is what I'm talking about when they tell us we all have to change to green energy, but they have no plan to accomplish that goal. Just the idea to do it. No concrete plans, and they can't even get on the same page to get the stuff built so that we can have it. And Oregon still has a teacher shortage. But don't let that stop them from continuing to fire teachers who aren't uh, uh, vaccinated. Oregon, Oregon's COVID vaccine mandate is exacerbating the teacher shortage within the state. Parents have protested Bend Lapine School District's decision to fire Ensworth Elementary School teacher Kelly Lundy. Lapine... Middle school teacher Zachary Webb and Mountain View High teacher Mark Schultz for refusing to get vaccinated or fill out religious exemption forms. Another outlet reported that the nearly 40 people were holding signs and showing support for the educators during emergency public hearing. Lapine School District, by the way, is out in the middle of nowhere, central Oregon. The school board voted 6-0 to zero to fire Schultz, Webb, and Lundy. All three appeared on Fox & Friends first Friday to explain why they didn't get the vaccine. I didn't want to get the vaccine because of the safety and efficacy, and so now what that is and what the school district is a secular institution to request me for a statement of my faith. I wasn't going to use my faith at a convenience to keep a job, Lundy said. It's been over a year now since we've actually been put on unpaid leave, and now they decide, hey, you know what, let's go ahead and fire you guys, so I have the same question. School districts across the country have been struggling with an exodus of teachers since the pandemic. A survey conducted earlier this year by the National Center for Education Statistics found that 44% of public schools report having full or part-time teacher vacancies.
The survey published in March found that 61% of public schools reporting at least one vacancy cited the pandemic for open jobs. Most of the vac uh, vacancies were due to resignations, not retirement, the survey reported. Mark Schultz said that the state's vaccine mandate doesn't make any sense. All along, we've been waiting, we've been wanting support from our district, from our administrators, and we've gotten absolutely none. In fact, we feel we're coerced into the position that we're in right now. We were told, hey, just sign the form. It'll get approved, Schultz said. It's the lowest bar you can need to keep your job. And we weren't willing to do that, Schultz added. We didn't want to give up our constitutional rights and more, and were more willing to allow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to get rubber stamped along with everyone else's exceptions. And so, no, we didn't get the support, and it doesn't make any sense. The firing of the three educators came after the after Polium recently filed a petition to the Oregon's Health Authority to repeal the state's vaccine mandate. Back in August 2021, Governor Kate Brown announced health care workers and all teachers, educators, sports staff, and volunteers in K-12 schools would need to be fully vaccinated. Oregon Moms Union claimed that this rule is exacerbating public education staffing shortages by banning qualified teachers, staff, and volunteer parents from classrooms for not being vaccinated. The petition is part of a process to review the validity of OHA's vaccine mandate. Within 90 days after receipt of the petition, the agency will either deny the petition or initiate rulemaking proceedings. Well, all I can say about this is, Oregon better take a look at some of the stuff happening on the East Coast with lawsuits against states with these vaccine mandates because they're not going well for the people mandating the vaccines. And I think eventually, these things are going to come around and these school districts are going to all these places that put these unconstitutional vaccine mandates on people are going to pay the price especially this far into the game when it's completely obvious that vaccines don't stop the spread and haven't really done a damn thing so why are you still forcing people to get these it's all about control. It's all about submission. You will submit to our authority. It's wrong. It's illegal. It's immoral. And it's unconstitutional. And I'm not quite sure why some of these courts around here aren't sticking up for our rights. But it's going to come around, I'm telling you. And California will be calling a special session. Governor Gavin Newsom announced on Friday. The special session of the state legislature in December to pass a new tax on oil company profits to punish them for what he called rank price gouging. Gas prices soared across the nation this summer because of high inflation, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, okay, and ongoing disruptions in the global supply chain. Remember, this is what uh, Biden said was going to be a painful transition for Americans. Hmm. But while gas prices have recovered somewhat nationwide, they have continued to spike in California, hitting an average of six thirty-nine per gallon on Friday, $2.58 higher than the national average, according to AAA. California has the second highest gas tax in the country and other environmental rules that increase the cost of fuel in the nation's most populous state. So they've done it to themselves. Still, Newsom said there is nothing to justify a price difference of more than $2.50 per gallon between California's gas 
and prices in other states. Really, bro, you have caused the gas prices in your state to skyrocket. Why do people listen to this guy? It's time to get serious. I'm sick of this, Newsom said. We've been too timid. The oil industry has pointed to California's environmental laws and regulations to explain why the state routinely has higher gas prices than the rest of the country. Kevin Slagle, vice president of the Western States Petroleum Association, said Newsom and state lawmakers should take a hard look at decades of California energy policy instead of proposing a new tax. No kidding. If this was anything other than a political stunt, the governor wouldn't wait two months and would call a special, special session now before the election, Slagle said. This industry is ready right now to work on real solutions to energy costs and reliability, if that is what the governor is truly interested in. But it's not. Several states chose to suspend their gas taxes this summer, including Maryland, New York, and Georgia. New scum and his fellow Democrats that control the state legislature, refused to do that, opting instead to send $9.5 billion in rebates to taxpayers, which began showing up in bank accounts this week. It's unclear how the tax Newsom is proposing would work. Newsom said he is still working out the details with legislative leaders, but on Friday said he wants the money to be returned to taxpayers, possibly by using money from the tax to pay for more rebates. State legislature briefly considered a proposal earlier this year that would have imposed a windfall profits tax on oil companies' gross receipts when the price of a gallon of gas was abnormally high compared to the price of a barrel of oil. That proposal would have required state regulators to determine the tax rate, making sure it recovered any oil companies' profit margins that exceeded 30 cents per gallon. The money from the tax would then have been returned to taxpayers via rebates. Newscom did not comment on the proposal when it was introduced in March, and lawmakers quickly shelved it. It could, however, act as a blueprint for the new proposal being negotiated between Newscom and legislative leaders. The legislature's top two leaders, Senate President Pro Tempore Tony Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, said in a joint statement that lawmakers will continue to examine all other options to help consumers. How about you suspend all your BS taxes? For a start. A solution that takes excessive profits out of the hands of oil corporations and puts money back into the hands of consumers deserves strong consideration by the legislature, they said. We look forward to examining the governor's detailed proposal when we receive it. California Republicans who do not control enough seats to influence policy decisions in the legislature have called the tax foolhardy. Who here thinks that another tax is going to bring down your gas prices, is going to bring down any costs in this state? It's not going to happen, Assembly Republican leader James Gallagher told reporters on Wednesday. Last month, regulators at the California Energy Commission wrote a letter to five oil refiners, Chevron, Marathon, Petroleum, PBF Energy, Phillips 66, and Valero, demanding an explanation for why gas prices jumped 84 cents over a 10-day period, even as oil prices fell. The commission wrote that the oil industry had not provided an adequate and transparent explanation for the price spike, which is causing real economic hardship to millions of Californians. On Friday, Scott Fulwarko, Valero's Vice President for State Government Affairs, responded that California is the most expensive operating environment in the country 
in a very hostile regulatory environment for refining. He said that has caused refineries to close and tighten supply because California requires refineries to produce a specific blend. Yes, California must have its own special blend of gas that is different from the entire rest of the country. So obviously it's going to cost more to have that fuel. He declined to provide details about how the company's operations based on the same antitrust concerns, but he said the company makes appropriate arrangements to source supply when some refineries are down for maintenance. Newsom dismissed those arguments, saying that still doesn't account for the $2.50 difference between California's prices and those in the rest of the country. These guys are playing us for fools. They have for decades. Mm, because you are fools, fool. The California legislature usually meets between January and August, where they consider bills on a variety of topics. The governor has the power to call a special legislative session at any time by issuing a proclamation. When convened in a special session, lawmakers can only consider the issues mentioned in that proclamation. The last time a California governor called a special legislative session was in 2015, when then-Governor Jerry Brown asked lawmakers to pass bills about health care and transportation. California is being led by fools. And most of you Californians just seem to put your head in the sand and go along with whatever they tell you. Your state government has created the high prices that you have to deal with in that state. Until you figure that out and put some different leadership in, nothing is going to change for you. So here's the real problem that Newscom should be dealing with, is this drought that's going on in California and the Southwest. And they continue taking water from the Colorado, even though they've been told they have to scale that back greatly. They turn down deals to make uh, the water filtration systems at the coast desalinization plants that could have brought precious drinking water and farming water to California. But they said that that created too much salt and that the salt would injure the fish, even though it seems like you could just stack the salt on the ground somewhere instead of putting it back in the ocean. But okay. So the groundwater crisis is most severe in the San Joaquin Valley, California's agricultural heartland, which exports fruits, vegetables, and nuts around the world. More than 1,200 wells have run dry this year statewide, a nearly 50% increase over the same period last year, according to the California Department of Water Resources. By contrast, fewer than 100 dry wells were reported annually in 2018, 2019, and 2020. Shrinking groundwater supplies reflect the severity of California's drought, which is now entering its fourth year. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, more than 94% of the state is in severe, extreme, or exceptional drought. California just experienced its three driest years on record, and state water officials said Monday they're preparing for another dry year because the weather phenomenon known as La Nina is expected to occur for the third consecutive year. Farmers are getting little surface water from the state's depleted reservoirs, so they're pumping more groundwater to irrigate their crops. That's causing water tables to drop across California. State data shows that 64% of wells are well below normal water levels. 
Water shortages are already reducing the region's agricultural production as farmers are forced to fallow fields and let orchards wither. An estimated 531,000 uh, 531, acres of farmland went unplanted this year because of lack of irrigation water, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. As climate change brings hotter temperatures and more severe droughts, cities and states around the world are facing water shortages. As lakes and rivers dry up, many communities are pumping more groundwater and depleting aquifers at an alarming pace. In Sonoma County, north of San Francisco, supervisors on Tuesday approved a six-month moratorium on drilling of new groundwater wells. It follows a lawsuit alleging the county wasn't appropriately managing groundwater. Madeira County, north of Fresno, has been hit particularly hard because it relies heavily on groundwater. The county has reported about 430 dry wells so far this year. In recent years, the country has seen the rapid expansion of thirsty almond and pistachio orchards that are typically irrigated by agricultural wells that run deeper than domestic wells. Why isn't Newsom focusing on this water crisis? This is a major problem. California exports a lot of agricultural products to the rest of the country. And yet, this apparently isn't even on his radar, doesn't seem to be concerned about it. I don't understand this guy's priorities. You have to have water to survive. In March, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order to slow a frenzy of well drilling over the past few years. The temporary measure prohibits local agencies from issuing permits for new wells that could harm nearby wells or structures. California's groundwater troubles come as local agencies seek to comply with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which Governor Jerry Brown signed in 2014, to prevent groundwater overpumping during the last drought. The law requires regional agencies to manage their aquifers sustainably by 2042. Water experts believe the law will lead to more sustainable groundwater supplies over the next two decades, but the road will be bumpy. The Public Policy Institute of California estimates that about 500,000 acres of agricultural land, about 10% of the current total, will have to come out of production over the next two decades. Well, they've already let 500,000 acres go unplanted, so you're talking about another 500,000 acres? California is not going to be a good place to live in the next few years. All these regulations, all these taxes, lack of water, they've got energy issues. I don't know what you're going to do down there. And the Los Angeles City Council is... Having quite the week, Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez resigned from her leadership role but remains on the council on Monday following a report that an audio recording captured openly racist remarks made with other Latino council members last year, including those directed at a white colleague's young black son. Martinez said in a statement Monday that effective immediately, I am resigning as president of the Los Angeles City Council. The move reportedly means she retains her seat as a council member. I take responsibility for what I said, and there are no excuses for those comments. I am so sorry. I sincerely apologize to the people I hurt with my words, to my colleagues, and yada, 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 yada. Isn't this typical of these people who preach about racism and how it's rampant with white people and all this other crap? 
And yet, here we have these two Latino council members making racist remarks. And this apparently happened at an airport, and uh, somebody recorded them. And it's not known who and who leaked the recording, but irregardless, these people are the ones harping on everybody all the time about racism. And yet, as expected, the people who harp the most about these social issues are usually the ones guilty of this crap themselves. According to the Los Angeles Times, Martinez criticized another colleague, Councilmember Mike Bonin, who was white over the parenting of his black son, who she said he treated like an accessory. Martinez remarked on the toddler's behavior during a Martin Luther King Day parade, saying that the float would have tipped over if she and the other women present didn't step in to parent this kid. They're raising him like a little white kid, Martinez said, according to the recording leaked on Reddit. I was like, this kid needs a beatdown. Let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Martinez also called Bonin's son S. Changuito, Spanish for that little monkey. Now just think for one moment if a white council member said that about a Hispanic council member's kid or a black council member's kid. Just just imagine. Now I know people are outraged down there, but these people should not be on the city council. DeLeon chimed in, comparing Bonin's handling of the toddler to when Nuri brings her little yard bag or the Louis Vuitton bag. Sue Negrito, like on the side, Martina has added. Unbelievable. These are the people running the city of Los Angeles. I guess it's really no surprise. But politicians are just scumbags across the board. I hope the people of Los Angeles can run them out of the council. The last thing I want to touch on is this medical board that California is establishing. 15 people who will decide the fates of doctors who spread quote-unquote misinformation to their patients. Seven of this 15-member board are not doctors. But they'll be telling doctors how to distribute or discuss medical information with patients. And if they determine that that's not up to their liking, the doctor could lose their medical license in California. I've harped on this issue so many times about so many other things where you've got these dumbass politicians making decisions about things they know nothing about. Nothing. Most of these people have never had a real job, never had any life experience, or they've been lawyers of some kind or sort. They go to school, they spend years and years and years in university, they get out with some sort of worthless, crappy degree that they probably don't even use, and then they go straight into community activism and politi politics. You've got people with zero life experience making rules and regulations for law enforcement and doctors and all these other 
technical jobs that they don't have a clue how to do or a clue how it works in real life. Not just on paper or in their silly little minds where they come up with all these rainbows and unicorns and whatever else. I think it's absolutely disgusting that politicians are telling doctors how to diagnose medical issues in the state of California. Or telling doctors what they can say and what they can't say. And instead of letting doctors do the best job they know how to do based on their medical education and life experience. Again, Californians, why do you put up with this crap from your government? Absolute insanity. California is going to dry up, black out, and fall off the edge of the U.S. I, mean, I just don't understand what's going on down there. You guys have serious problems going on, and your government seems to be unconcerned about the basic needs of survival in this state. Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to the Behind the Line podcast. For more, visit BehindTheLinePodcast.com. You can also find us on NetNewsNetwork.net, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Telegram, Gab, Parler, and Truth Social. Please like, share, and subscribe.